0: On January fifteenth, 1929, Michael King and his wife, Alberta Williams King, welcomed their second child into their home, Michael King Jr. Michael King Sr. was the pastor at Ebenezer Baptist Church in Atlanta, Georgia, a position that he had inherited from his father-in-law, who was the pastor there before him. In the summer of 1934, Ebenezer Baptist wanted to send their pastor on on a tour overseas of some important historical locations as it related to Christianity. And so he traveled to Rome, through Tunisia, Egypt, eventually going to the the Holy Land of Jerusalem and, and toured Bethlehem before setting sail for Germany. When he arrived in Berlin, it was simply, it was less than a year after Adolf Hitler had become chancellor, and all around him he saw the rise of Nazi Germany and the hatred growing against Jewish men and women. While he was in Germany, he also learned about this theologian and monk that he had heard of but didn't know a whole lot about, a gentleman by the name of Martin Luther who in 1517 had nailed his 95 theses to the door of the Wittenberg Castle Church, helping launch the Protestant Revolution. His time in Germany had a profound impact on Michael, and when he returned home to Atlanta, Georgia, he legally changed both his own name and the name of his now five-year-old son, who was to be Martin Luther King, Jr., Like many of you, I grew up knowing about Martin Luther King Jr. for one very important reason. His birthday got me an extra day off school every January, and I loved him for that. It was a Monday, no less. How great is Mondays off, right? Well, obviously, I knew that Martin Luther King Jr. was an important man. I think that at some point I even understood that he had done a lot to fight against discrimination and to help advance the civil rights movement of the 1960s. But that was decades before I was born. I didn't know a single person of color growing up, and I naively thought that all of that racism stuff was in the past. Clearly, growing up, I had a lot to learn, and I have. In the years since, I've slowly but surely learned more and more about the pastor who was born, Michael King. And in recent history, I've tried to absorb as much as I possibly can about him. I've read his autobiographies and the books that he has written, I read letters written to him, letters that he wrote back. I've read letters written by, uh, imaginary letters written by pastors and theologians today, kind of back to him through the the ages of history. I've watched his sermons, I've listened to his speeches, and I've come to the conclusion that while he was far from perfect, I believe that he was one of those people that Hebrews 11.38 is true of, that this world was not worthy of him. We're in a series right now called True Story, where every week we're looking at the life of a woman or a man who did incredible things because of their faith in God. And as we look at their lives and as we look at their stories, we're asking ourselves if there's one thing that we could pull from their life, what might it be? If there's one thing that God wants to grow in us that had been grown in them and developed in them, what would that thing be? If you were here last week, you know that we passed out prayer cards that have this kind of overarching prayer that we're all praying during this series in it. If you didn't get one, stop by the info desk on your way out today and you can grab one of those cards. But the prayer that we're encouraging everybody to pray in this series is simply, Lord, expand my vision, ignite my passion, and cultivate something in me. We're asking God to help us get our eyes up off of the ground in front of us, to see all around us what he is doing and how he wants us to be a part of it. We're asking him to ignite our passion, to fill us with his spirit, which is alive and active and and is passionate. And we're asking God to cultivate some things in us that will impact not just 2019 for us, but all the rest of our lives. We kicked the series off two weeks ago by looking at Beniah and the courage that he lived with. Last week we continued by looking at Simeon and the patience he developed. And today I want us to remember the life and legacy of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And as we do, as we recount his life, I want us to consider together the enormous sacrifice that he was willing to make. Sacrifice will be the theme for the day. Martin Luther King Jr. had a very normal childhood for someone growing up in the South in the 30s and 40s. Talking about his own experience, he said, there was a pretty strict system of segregation in Atlanta. For a long, long time, I could not go swimming until there was a black YMCA. A black child in Atlanta could not go to any public park. I could not go to the so-called white schools. In many of the downtown stores, I couldn't go to a lunch counter to buy a hamburger or a cup of coffee. I could not attend any of the theaters. There were one or two black theaters, but they didn't get any of the main pictures. If they did get them, they got them two or three years later. This was life in the so-called separate but equal world of the 1940s. Without question, it was absolutely separate, but also without question, it was not equal. In every way imaginable, people of color were discriminated against. It was an everyday reality. Discrimination against the black population had reached even into the most subtle parts of American culture. Growing up, Martin Luther King Jr. made the following observation. He said that even semantics conspire to make that which is black seem ugly and degrading. In Roger's thesaurus, there are some 120 synonyms for blackness, and at least 60 of them are offensive. Such words as blot, soot, grime, devil, and foul. There are some 134 synonyms for whiteness, and all are favorable, expressed in such words as purity, cleanliness, chastity, and innocence. A white lie is better than a black lie. The most degenerate member of a family is the black sheep, not the white sheep. In his autobiography, he talks about the common occurrence of being the recipient of outright racism. Just one of those examples from growing up, he said, When I was about eight years old, I was in one of the downtown stores in Atlanta, and all of a sudden someone slapped me, And the only thing I heard was somebody saying, you are that blank that stepped on my foot. Experiences like this had an impact on Martin Luther King Jr. How could they not? He recalls that even as a young child, he realized how horrible these experiences made him feel about himself. They made him feel like he was not as good as everyone else, that he was dirty and dumb and even worthless. But Martin's father did not take the racism that his son was facing lightly and he taught Martin Luther Jr. that it was not okay, that he was as good as everyone else, that he was intelligent and gifted and that God had created him for a purpose. Martin would go on to prove his father right, doing extremely well in school, even being asked to skip both the ninth and the 12th grades. As he continued to grow up, not only did he flourish academically, but his faith also flourished. And by the time it came time to leave for college, he says, As a young man, with most of my life ahead of me, I decided early to give my life to something eternal and absolute. Not to these little gods that are here today and gone tomorrow, but to God who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. At the age of 15... He left for Morehouse College. Fifteen years old, he enrolled as a freshman in college where he would earn his bachelor's degree in sociology. From there, he would go to Crozer Theological Seminary for his divinity degree before finishing his studies at Boston University where he would earn a doctorate in systematic theology becoming Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. By this time, Martin Luther was married to his wife Coretta Scott, and he had a big decision to make regarding where he and his wife would live and what type of work he would do. On one hand, he had multiple job offers from different universities in the Northeast. On the other hand, there was a small church in Montgomery, Alabama, that had offered him the position of being their senior pastor. He had a decision to make. The university jobs were no doubt very appealing. He would make more money, hold a more prestigious position. He would probably work fewer hours and have more time to spend with his family. But maybe best of all, he would be able to sit and pontificate on the evils of racism in the South from the relative comfort and security of academia in the North. Of the decision, he wrote, I found that my wife was also hesitant to return South. We discussed the all-important question of raising children in the bonds of segregation. We reviewed our own growth in the South and the many advantages we had been deprived of as a result of segregation. The question of my wife's musical career came up. She was certain that a northern city would afford a greater opportunity for continued study than any city in the deep South. For several days, we talked and thought and prayed over each of these matters. Finally, we agreed that in spite of the disadvantages and inevitable sacrifices they knew going in that their life would be a life of sacrifice if they chose to move south, they decided our greatest service could be rendered in our native south. We came to the conclusion that we had something of a moral obligation to return, at least for a few years. And so on October 31st, 1954, Martin became the pastor of Dexter Avenue Baptist Church in Montgomery, Alabama. It would be less than a year later when a woman, also in Montgomery, Alabama, would be arrested. A woman named Rosa Parks. She was arrested when she refused to give up her seat in the black section of the bus when a white man told her to move. Her arrest made news quickly And four days later, a group of citizens organized what they called the Montgomery Improvement Association, and they elected the Reverend King as their president. The group would go on to organize a boycott of all the city buses, and they organized a ride-sharing program to help people get from where they were to where they needed to go without taking the city buses. Thousands of people responded, which crippled the bus system due to its lack of use and the loss of funds that normally came from bus fares. People in the city did not respond well, including the city's leaders and the police officers. By mid-January, there was all sorts of violence taking place. In mid-January, Reverend King was driving home from church one day when he saw some people walking and he thought, I'll pull over and I'll give them a ride. I'll see where they need to go. As he did that, he noticed two police officers pull up behind him on, on motorcycles and as he pulled away from the curb, he knew, I need to follow every traffic law absolutely perfectly so that I don't get in trouble. He did and despite that, he was pulled over for speeding, arrested and taken to jail. Writing about that experience, he says, "'After depositing my things and giving the jailer the desired information, "'I was led to a dingy and odorous cell. "'As the big iron door swung open, the jailer said to me, "'All right, get on in there with all the others. "'For the moment, strange gusts of emotion swept through me "'like cold winds on an open prairie. "'For the first time in my life, I was thrown behind bars.'" This was the first time that Martin Luther King Jr. was thrown behind bars, but it would not be the last. In fact, over the next 13 years, he would be arrested and put in jail a total of 29 times. Twenty-nine times he would have this experience. The abuse and the violence that Martin Luther King and his family would endure was simply just beginning. He writes, almost immediately after the protest started, we had begun to receive threatening telephone calls and letters. They increased as time went on. By the middle of January, they had risen to 30 and 40 a day. Can you imagine getting 30 to 40 threatening letters and phone calls every single day? And we have to remember that these were not empty threats, On January 30th of that year, while he was speaking at a gathering, his wife and children at home, someone literally bombed his house. Luckily, his family survived, but it's almost impossible for us to understand today what this man and his family went through to help end a system of injustice and oppression. The boycott lasted over a year. They endured that type of abuse for over a year until December 21st, 1956, when the United States Supreme Court stepped in and declared that all laws requiring segregation on buses would be unconstitutional. Shortly after the Supreme Court ruling, he was giving a speech in Brooklyn, New York, where he said, Christ showed us the way, and Gandhi in India showed us it could work. He was referring, of course, to the work of Mahatma Gandhi, who had been working in India to bring about racial equality there in the years leading up to Martin Luther King Jr. beginning his work. They had won a victory in Montgomery, but even bigger than that, the foundation had been laid for his commitment to addressing oppression and injustice in a nonviolent way. Shortly after Montgomery kind of wrapped up, King and a few others organized what they called the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. He was made the president of this new organization that was committed to taking the blueprint for success that they had developed in Montgomery into other cities where oppression and injustice ran rampant as well. They developed a four-step process, which they would follow again and again and again every time they would go into a city. And he describes that four-step process in a letter that he wrote to a group of pastors who were speaking out against him. He wrote a letter to them from a solitary confinement jail cell in Birmingham, Alabama, where he says this, In any nonviolent campaign, there are four basic steps. Collection of the facts to determine whether injustices exist. Number two, negotiation. Number three, self-purification. And finally, direct action. Direct action would be like a sit-in or a march or some type of protest. He wrote, you may well ask, why direct action? Why the sit-ins, the marches, and so forth? Isn't negotiation a better path? You are quite right in calling for negotiation. Indeed, this is the very purpose of direct action. Nonviolent direct action seeks to create such a crisis and foster such a tension that a community which has constantly refused to negotiate is forced to confront the issue. It seeks to dramatize the issue so that it can no longer be ignored. In the eleven-year period between Montgomery and the end of his life, King would would travel over six million miles and speak over twenty five hundred times. He was willing to appear wherever and whenever there was injustice and systemic racism. Through it all, he faced abuse like we can only imagine. But he kept going because he had a dream that he was driven to see fulfilled. He had a dream that he felt God had given him, an image of the preferred future. He understood, understood what God was trying to do and he wanted to be part of it. He spoke about this dream on multiple occasions, but the most famous time he spoke about it was, no doubt, whenever he spoke about it from the steps of the Lincoln Memorial in front of 250,000 onlookers during the March on Washington in 1963. During that event, he gave a 17-minute speech, but the most most famous five minutes of the speech came when he left his notes because a woman in the crowd yelled to him, tell him about your dream, Martin. And so he did. He put the notes away, and he simply started to share from his heart this dream that God had given him. And I think that it would be a remiss this weekend, as we remember the life and legacy of Dr. King, to not take the time to watch that five-minute clip. So take a look.
1: from the mighty mountains of New York. Let freedom ring from the heightening Alleghenies of Pennsylvania. Let freedom ring from the snow-capped Rockies of Colorado. Let freedom ring from the crevaceous slopes of California. But not only that, let freedom ring from Stone Mountain of Georgia. Let freedom ring from Lookout Mountain of Tennessee. Let freedom ring from every hill and mole hill of Mississippi, from every mountainside. Let freedom ring, and when this happens, and when we allow freedom ring, when we let it ring from every village and every hamlet, from every state and every city.
0: Well, as his influence grew, so did the opposition against him and his work. In addition to those 29 times that he was arrested, he was the recipient of countless other acts of violence, discrimination, and hate. In 1958, while he was signing books in Harlem, New York, a woman came up to him and stabbed a seven-inch-long letter opener deep into his chest. The tip of the blade came within millimeters of his aorta, and he underwent emergency surgery to remove the blade. Surgeons later said that if he had sneezed before he had gotten to the hospital, there's no doubt it would have cut his aorta and he would have bled to death. It took him weeks to recover in the hospital, but from the hospital bed, he issued a statement affirming the nonviolent principles that he was committed to and declaring that he felt no ill will towards his attacker. Through his organization, the SCLC, King ended up working in cities all across the country, trying to help eradicate systemic race-based injustices. They went to work in Albany, in Birmingham, in St. Augustine, in Selma, in Los Angeles, and New York City, just to name some of the cities they worked in. We don't have time to look at those experiences and to talk about what he did, but none of those were easy. And in all of those situations, they demanded radical sacrifices from Martin Luther King Jr. and his family. As difficult as those experiences were, he said that maybe the hardest, though, was when he was asked to help address the racist housing policies on the south side of Chicago. He writes of that experience, My concern for the welfare of blacks in the North was no less than that for blacks in the South. And my conscience dictated that I should commit as much of my personal and organizational resources to their cause as was humanly possible. And so in 1966, King moved to the city of Chicago. Living in Chicago, leaving his home, was just one more sacrifice that he was willing to make. He wrote of that, that summer living in Chicago. He said, We were met with massive violence when we marched into certain areas. We suffered in the process of trying to dramatize the issues when we marched into all-white areas that denied us access to houses and where real estate agents would not allow us to see listings. Bottles and bricks were thrown at us. We were often beaten Some of the people who had been brutalized in Selma and who were present in Montgomery led marches in the suburbs of Chicago amid a rain of rocks and bottles among burning automobiles to the thunder of jeering thousands, many of them waving Nazi flags. Swastikas bloomed in Chicago parks like misbegotten weeds. Our marches were met by a hailstorm of bricks, bottles, and firecrackers. He reflected on this time and he said, I've been in many demonstrations all across the South, but I can say that I have never seen, even in Mississippi, mobs as hostile and as hate-filled as in Chicago. Records show that Martin Luther was literally stoned while he was living in Chicago. On top of all the abuse that he took from people who didn't like their nonviolent protests, As much sacrifice as he made to his physical body, the leaders of the city came along and they threatened him with a legal injunction. The leaders of the city thought maybe the threat of jail time would be the thing that would finally cause Martin Luther King Jr. to just give it up and go home. Clearly, they did not know Reverend King very well. He addressed their threat in a speech he gave called Why I March. And I have to play a one-minute clip from this speech for you. It's so good as he addresses the city's leader's threat of more jail time. Take a listen to this.
1: Now I, wanna, I just want to warn the city that it would be an act of folly in the midst of seeking to negotiate a solution to this problem to go seek an injunction because if they don't know it we are veteran jail goers (laughs) and for us jails are not dungeons of shame they are havens of freedom and human dignity I've been to jail in Florida, I've been to jail in Georgia, I've been to jail in Mississippi, I've been to jail in Virginia, and I'm ready to go to jail in Chicago!
0: (laughs) Uh, I'm ready to go to jail in Chicago. Well, after Chicago, Martin continued to work tirelessly on behalf of the oppressed, and the sacrifices that he made continued. The hatred that he received, the letters and threatening phone calls, the acts of violence. His home was bombed a second time. One of the things that he writes in his autobiography, one of the most significant sacrifices was simply the amount of time he had to spend away from his wife and his four kids that he loved so much. And of course, we all know that in 1968, he made the ultimate sacrifice. In April of that year, he went to Memphis, Tennessee to support a strike by the city's black sanitation workers, and in a speech the night before his assassination, he told an audience at the Mason Temple Church that, like anybody, I would like to live a long life. He said, longevity has its place, but I'm not concerned about that now. I have seen the promised land. I may not get there with you, but I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. And I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything, I'm not fearing any man. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. It was almost prophetic when he said, I may not get to the promised land with you. Because the very next day, as he was preparing to go to dinner with a local pastor, he was shot and killed. Martin Luther King Jr. was 39 years old. Martin Luther King Jr. made an impact that we are still feeling today. The legacy that he left behind, the advances that he achieved on behalf of so many people, and the importance of the work that he he started simply cannot be overstated. But we must remember that all of the advances he saw came only with sacrifice. And it's enough when you really stop to consider his life of sacrifice. It's enough to make you wonder, how could he do it? How was he able to to absorb that much hatred and that much abuse and that much violence? How could he watch his home with his children and it be bombed on multiple occasions and to continue to get up and to go to work to try to help others experience freedom and justice themselves? How was he able to do it? Throughout history, there have been a number of women and men who have made sacrifices of all kinds, and they've done it for all sorts of reasons. But when you look at the sacrifices made by Martin Luther King Jr., there can be no doubt what motivated him. It was his faith in Jesus. Everything he did, everything he achieved, all that he accomplished, all the sacrifices he was able to endure, it was all motivated by and it was all sustained by his faith in Jesus. I think that we have to be careful today to not rewrite history by making him some civil rights leader. He was not just a civil rights leader, he was a pastor. We are not remembering a politician, we are remembering a pastor. The foundation of his life was his faith in Jesus Martin Luther King Jr. believed with everything in him that God had sent his son to this planet to show us, to show people how to live in relationship to God the Father and how to live in relationship with one another. That's what he believed. And then he looked around at the country that he loved just 50 years ago and he saw massive amounts of racism that violated everything Jesus had taught about loving our neighbor as ourselves and about laying down our life for our friends. And he knew that he had to do something about it. It was a moral imperative. His faith would not let him sit on the sidelines and the, just let the hatred continue unchecked. He had been filled with the love of Christ. And it was that love that overflowed out of him that allowed him to make those sacrifices and to absorb that hatred and that violence and respond in an act, in response with nonviolent acts of love. To simply protest from a position of love. It was the love of God that filled his life that allowed him to make the hard sacrifices that he made. And he believed that true Christianity asks the same. From all of us. Look at what he said in one of my favorite sermons. He said, Honesty impels me to admit that transformed nonconformity. What is that? Well, he's given a sermon on not being, uh, you know, conformed to the pattern of the world, but being transformed. And so he says, Honesty impels me to admit that living life that way, that transformed nonconformity, which is always costly, and never altogether comfortable, may mean walking through the valley of the shadow of suffering. It may mean losing a job. Or having your six-year-old daughter ask you, Daddy, why do you have to go to jail so much? But we are gravely mistaken to think that Christianity protects us from the pain and agony of mortal existence. Christianity has always insisted that the cross we bear precedes the crown we wear. That is so good. Let me just say that last line again. Christianity has always insisted that the cross we bear precedes the crown we wear. He said to be a Christian, one must take up his cross with all of its difficulties and agonizing and tragedy-packed content and carry it until that very cross leaves its marks upon us and redeems us to that more excellent way that comes only through suffering. He said, to be a Christian, one must take up his cross. That is a bold statement. That is a hard calling But it is a calling that comes not from Reverend King. It's a calling that comes from Jesus himself. He was simply reminding his church of what Jesus said in Mark chapter 8 that day. You might remember this conversation that that is recorded in Mark chapter 8. Jesus was nearing the end of his ministry, and so as he begins kind of the march towards the end of his life, he gathered his disciples together. And in March 8, we read that he tells them, listen, we're going to head to Jerusalem now, and I just want you to know ahead of time what's going to happen when we get there. When we get there, I'm going to be arrested. I'm going to be tried, and they are going to put me to death. Well, Peter, one of the 12 disciples, does not want to hear any of this. So he pulls Jesus off to the side, and he literally rebukes Jesus. He says, Jesus, come on now, don't talk like that, Jesus. Jesus, nobody wants to hear about sacrifice. Nobody wants to hear about death, so don't talk about that. Come on now, we don't, that's not necessary, right? Like, you're Jesus, you're the Messiah. You can just vanish, you know, walk through the co- crowds like you've done before. You can, you can stop that. Don't talk about sacrifice. Don't talk about death. Well, look what Jesus says in response. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said, because you do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. He said, Peter, you don't want me to talk about sacrifice because that's not good for you. He said, Peter, let me just point out the obvious here. You're not asking God, what is your will and how can I be a part of it? You're asking God, will you be part of my will? Will you fulfill my will? Peter, you don't want me to talk about sacrifice because that's not good for Peter. And he continued, then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples. And he said, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Jesus is the one who said, if you want to be a Christian, you must take up your cross. And we have to remember that the the cross was seen very differently in the first century than it is today for us. Today, for us, the cross has become a decoration. It is a beautiful thing. For us today, the cross is is something that we wear on necklaces. It's something that we get tattooed on us. We go, Jesus, I've taken up my cross. I got a cross tattooed on my back shoulder. No one will ever see it, and I'm not even sure if it's still there. But see, clearly, I've taken up my cross, Jesus But in the first century, they understood what a cross was all about. They had seen people hung, crucified on a cross. In the first century, they knew the blood of a cross. They knew the smell that came with a cross. They knew the horrifying screams as people lost their lives on crosses. The cross was an instrument of death. And Jesus said, if anyone wants to come after me, they must deny themselves and they must be willing to die to themselves and what they think is best for their life if they want to truly follow me. I don't know about you, but for me, this is the part of our faith that I would prefer to ignore. And it's easy to do that because there are a lot of benefits to our faith. Right? If you've been a follower of Christ for a long time, you know that there are very tangible benefits to living your life with a biblical worldview when you live out the teachings of Jesus, that results in good things for you, right? When you seek to uh, be slow to speak and quick to listen and slow to get angry, that is a good thing for your relationships and you're the beneficiary of that teaching, of living out that biblical teaching. You benefit. When you are generous with your money, That breaks the chains of greed that wants to grip your heart so tightly. And as a result of your generosity, you get to live life with a spirit that feels more free. It is good for you to follow that teaching. When we have an issue with somebody else and we follow Jesus' teaching in Matthew 18 and instead of talking about that person to a bunch of people behind their back and just stewing on it, but we choose to do what Jesus taught us to do and you go directly to that person and you have a one-on-one conversation where you try to work it out and where you are quick to forgive, like that's good for you. There is a tangible benefit to that. There are a ton of benefits to following Jesus, but we have to remember that Jesus also calls us to lay down our lives as a living sacrifice for him. Following Jesus will bring God's blessing on our life, but we have to remember that we have been called to much more than simply receiving those blessings. We have been given a job to do. We have been called to be a blessing to the people around us. We have been called to look not only to our own interests, but also to the interests of others. We have been called to help carry one another's burdens. We have been called to rebuild that which has been broken. We have been called to give dignity to those who have been demeaned. We have been called to lift high those who have been pushed low. We have been called to see those who are invisible, to hear those who go unheard, and to give a voice to those who are speechless. We have been called to build bridges wherever there are divides in our world. Racial divides, gender divides, political divides, religious divides, even economic divides. We have been called to help build bridges in all of those areas, across all of those divides. Ultimately, we have been called to help bring heaven to earth. We have been called to help more and more people every day of our lives get to be ushered into the kingdom of God. We have been called to not just be blessed, but we have been called to pass that blessing on to others as we pour it out. But that doesn't happen when we are completely consumed with our own little world. Maybe for some of us, The time has come as we pray that prayer, God cultivate blank in me. Maybe for some of us, we have filled in that blank for too long with words like peace and comfort and happiness and balance. And maybe for some of us, it is time to put the word sacrifice down on the page and to ask God to stretch us and grow us and to take us to places in our life where we have never gone before, quite frankly, because we're afraid to go there because we know it's going to cost something of us. But when we get to heaven, none of us want to stand before our creator and hear him say, well, You lived a very balanced life, didn't you? No. We want to stand before him and hear him say, well done, my good and faithful servant. You lived your life not for yourself, but for me. Now come, receive the reward that I have prepared for you because of that. Let's be people who live lives of sacrifice, and who helped bring heaven to earth for more and more people in the same way that Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. did. Let me pray for you. Lord, we're grateful this weekend for the life and legacy of Dr. King. Lord, we're no doubt in awe of the sacrifices he was willing to make because of his faith in you and what he felt you were calling him to do. And Lord, our ask is simply that you would give us a little bit of that. That you would help us to be willing to lay down our lives, to take up our cross, and to follow you. Not in the same way that Martin Luther King Jr. did, but to the life that you are calling us to live. God, would you help us to get our eyes up off of ourselves and see what you're doing around us and how we can be a part of it. Lord, would you help us to not be afraid to sacrifice what is good for us for the benefit of others. Because ultimately, we know that we have all of eternity to enjoy your blessings. And God, would you help us to bring more and more people along with us, to expand your kingdom in our community. And Lord, would you be glorified by the lives we live in your name. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, and everyone who agreed said, Amen.